0: A few weeks ago, we sent everyone a webinar focused on the 2022 final rule and pricing transparency updates. Many of you sent us questions through our dedicated email, MissouriQuestions at WarbirdCP.com. I want to thank you very much for those questions. Some of you will hear and notice that uh, some of those questions are being used today. So thank you for doing that. We want you to please watch your email for future educational webinars. Uh, the next one should be delivered in about two weeks, and it's going to focus on the No Surprises Act. So I had a lot of people request one from the No Surprises Act, and we're going to get that off to you. As Tiffany mentioned, if you have any questions, please use that Q&A function in the chat. If we don't get to your question, don't despair. Uh, we'll respond via email. Please, don't be shy. This session is ultimately for you, so it's the hardest thing for people to to uh, get involved and ask questions. So please do so. We're we're doing this and we are here to to help you. Lastly, uh, we hope to schedule regular Ask the Expert sessions in the future. You know, so ultimately our content uh, depends on your questions. So please keep them company. All right, let's get started. Lori Daigle, welcome. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I am very well. Thank you for being here. Lori Beaudry, again, too. Welcome. Thank you for being here. So let's get this started Uh, and I'm gonna ask each of you what you see as our biggest challenge right now or issues in the coding and revenue cycle marketplace. Uh, Just like one or two things just to get us started before we start rocking and rolling with some questions here. Lori Daigle, you go first.
1: I would say one of the biggest challenges is communication. So much has changed in the past few years between the No Surprises Act, between the public health emergency, all the changes that are happening but communication from the front end through the providers to coding and billing and the feedback loop and the revenue cycle still tends to lag. Providers are kept out of the loop and sometimes with education issues, and with the exception usually of minimal routine EM auditing, they aren't getting a lot of feedback, so they assume everything is fine. The problems aren't escalated as a trend then usually they slip through the revenue cycle. And by the time they're identified, they're too old. You know, we have a lot of cleanup to do, a lot of follow-up appeals, things like that. Sometimes by that time, the behavior is so ingrained, it's not easily fixed. All payers send changes well in advance. They have newsletters. They have updates that go out. CMS has the transmittals that go out. And yet education starts when the problem is identified instead of long before when we're notified that an implementation of a change is coming.
0: So that's that's true. Laurie Baudry.
2: I agree, Laurie. It really does continue to be communication. I think some of the issues that come up is the codes are constantly changing, CPT codes are constantly changing, rules are constantly changing, LCDs are constantly changing, NCDs are constantly changing, the EM guidelines are constantly changing. Encoders not understanding what's their responsibility and the billers not understanding what's their responsibility and how do they work together and communicate with each other.
0: Well, it goes with the revenue cycle maximum. The only uh, constant is change. So we are certainly living in that. So, all right. So first couple questions were received from our Missouri questions email address. Again, thank you for sending those. We're thrilled that you're using that. Please keep using that. So here we go. This question is in response to our recent 2022 CMS final rule and pricing transparency webinar. The question is, my facility has a disconnect between pharmacy, coding, and revenue cycle when it comes to drug picks, descriptions, pricing in units. We're very frustrated. We try to move forward and just never seem to get anywhere. Uh, do you have any suggestions on where we should start? Great question. Uh, I think both of you have insights on this. Uh, Lori Daigle, what's your response?
1: Well, starting with the charge master, you'll make sure that the picks and CPTs Are published and they are correct. That the descriptions are in plain English that everyone can understand. Make sure your prices are set at the each price, particularly with the pharmacy. Lots of times with the pharmacy, you'll see it priced per vial, not per hickpick, and then you get some confusion around what the price actually is because you have the hickpick identified, but the price is for the vial, which never matches the hickpick price or the hickpick size. Make sure the prices aren't set to zero. If it's charge editable, lots of times we see zeros in place. And then you publish basically that your services are free. So make sure that you don't have your prices set to zero. If it's charge editable, maybe you wanna put in the last price or the most common price, but not set it to zero. If your charge master is clean, you can set up formulas to help you with your no surprises act estimates for instance and you can use it to help in a lot of ways but starting with that clean charge master is the best way to go.
0: Okay, no that's that's great. I always think coding is an underutilized resource when it comes to this especially around the revenue cycle. Lloyd Bordwick, how can coding add value to this process?
2: It's interesting, John. A lot of coders will tell you that they're not familiar with the picks for the J codes and the drug codes. It's not something that is inherent in, to a coder, um, although we do work with the facility where they are responsible to review it and ensure the capture of it. So I think really making sure that the providers or the staff in the office or at the hospital clinic are documenting what type of drug is being given, how is it going to be given, was the drug ordered? What was ordered? What was given? How was it given? And what was the stop and start times of the drug? That's where the coders come in that can add to the HCPCS codes, How the administration of it.
0: Well, certainly I think, you know, when it comes to these services, community is a strength and more communication and more different people that are coming to this is better for you. Uh, follow-up question on this. Uh, so proper coding and billing for hydration, infusion, and injection services, you know, that always seems to be a hot topic in hospitals. I know each of you have worked with hospitals to create a culture of kind of quality and accountability for these services. Lori Baudry, an area for concern is always the documentation of start and stop times. So can, just quick thing, why are start and stop times important from a coding perspective? And maybe give one or two strategy things about steps you've taken to assist nursing or the system to make sure that those are documented appropriately. In order to bill
2: any type of a drug administration, hydration, infusion, and injections, you need the time that the drug was given. We need a stop and a start time for anything that was infused. If there is no stop and start time, then you can't code the administration of the drug for an infusion. It's money that is going to be lost to the hospitals if we don't start to capture that. Some facilities will allow the clinicians to just put the length of time uh, to run over 20 minutes. I personally don't agree with that. I think that stop and start time is very clean. It can be built into the EMR, or they click on when they started it, and they click on when they ended it, and it makes it very clean and very easy to code and then very easy to bill.
0: Terrific. Lori Daigle, I know you've implemented a lot of reports to provide a quality check for these services. Can you just tell us quickly about a few of those and the impact that they've had, and maybe you know, some of our listeners can take that away and implement that in their system?
1: Sure. For month-end reports, I use things like identifying multiple initial infusions per patient on an encounter. That's a flag that somebody's not understanding the process. If there's a multiple infusions per encounter, it should stop and be reviewed to make sure it has the appropriate modifiers to say that that's appropriate. Otherwise, somebody's not understanding the process. Create a report from maximum and minimum drug units for the most common drugs. For instance, you know, if we know that a drug like Rituxin is going to have at least 80 units. Your max, your minimum should be set around 80, and your max should be set at the max. So that way, when one unit bills, it drops for review, because that indicates it was billed at the vial size, not at the Hick pick level. Understanding the average time infused for common medications allows you to track those outliers. So, if you know a drug takes, say, a minimum of 30 minutes. And when you see that drug is billed, if it's not hitting that outlier, it can drop for review. That way, as Lori said, we end up not capturing that administration appropriately. If it's continually being captured as a push, we know that we're not getting that information, and we need to feed that back to the nurses.
0: No, that's that's terrific. So just for our listeners, if you're going to invest time and energy and you want positive ROI – Bring ROI and time into this process. That min report that Lori mentioned, I have seen in facilities uh, pay for FTE count over and over and over again. You can just make so much value out of these simple reports. Lori Bortree, you wanted to add something.
2: I do. From a clinical standpoint, it's also very important that the providers of clinicians document the start and stop time. If somebody's transferred to a floor, somebody's transferred to another hospital or another provider needs to know what time the drug ended if they need to give another drug it's really important that the stop and start times are there
0: okay now that's that's terrific all right let's go to our next question i am a business office manager and my hospital's been inundated with denials recently most of them are for medical necessity everyone thinks my staff created the issue and is responsible for fixing them i can't without coding and they're not very helpful any suggestions on what i should do lori daigle take that one
1: I would start by thinking of where the denial is originating. Maybe it's not something coding can help with. The lab denials originate from the ordering provider, but it comes from the ordering diagnosis that the doctor puts on there. The coders can't necessarily help with that. So if we're counting that as a denial, for instance, for the lab, maybe we want to take a look at the trends by the ordering provider. A Coding is only as good as the documentation. And their answers are only going to be as good as the questions they receive. So if they just get a question back saying this denied, they're going to respond coded as documented. The problem may be with the documentation, not with the coding. So we have to kind of understand where the issues originated to see who would be the appropriate person to help with that.
0: Okay. So, Lori Baudry, what are your thoughts?
2: So what we see at some of the facilities, especially when we're talking about the high-dollar denials for CAT scans and the MRIs, some places are putting the accounts on hold. They're having the coders put it on hold if it didn't meet medical necessity. If you have that built into your encoder, it's very evident to the coders that it didn't meet medical necessity. Giving HIM or... Radiology or lab, the ability to go back to the provider to review the order to why they actually ordered it that's documented in the patient's record at the time. It can be helpful. It is a lot of work, but if you're talking about high dollar items, it would be worth it.
0: Yeah, and I think the most important piece to everyone listening is, you know, denial management is a full contact sport. It is something that requires everyone to be on the same page. If you have a facility that has what we like to call the us versus them, and, you know, everybody has their own little siloed approach, you're never going to be really great at this. You need everyone to be uh, participative, and you need them to feel as though they've got a seat at the table. So, all right, next question. Another business office manager. I am a business office manager, and I'm not a fan of pricing transactions. Transparency. How many times we heard that? Your webinar was very helpful, but at my hospital, I don't have control over the CDM or contracting. I can't get administration's attention about the importance of the issue. Any suggestions for how I get my hospital to be compliant? Uh, Lori Daigle, this seems like a perfect question for you.
1: Well, I think a good good way to start a conversation with um, leadership on this is how pricing transparency intertwines with the No Surprises Act. If the pricing is not accurate on your charge master, what you're published, then you'll have problems with the estimates you create for the patients. So thinking about it from the perspective of letting pricing transparency help us comply with the new law, because the No Surprises Act is a law. It's not a regulation. It's not a CMS guideline. It's a law. So we have to make sure we follow that appropriately. A lot of places are not a fan of pricing transparency because it's very difficult, but it's necessary. It's required by Medicare now, and it carries big fines. So that's another big trigger to make sure that administration helps you comply is to avoid those fines. Those fines are per day, per violation. The approach sometimes helps in terms of getting on board and saying that I need to fix this. Who can I partner with here? Who can I partner with to help me with this?
0: Well, then that makes A lot of sense. So, one clarification, and I think this is important for everybody to understand there's a lot of misunderstanding out there on pricing transparency. If you're a critical access hospital, it doesn't matter. You still need to comply. It applies to everybody. So, I've got a lot of critical access hospitals across the country thinking that they don't have to be concerned about this. That's not correct. And we need to make sure uh, that we're compliant with that. And really, this isn't going away. This is an opportunity and you'll hear this throughout some of the other questions I think that we talk about today. Uh, All of the problems that you have are the opportunities to get better at things. And pricing transparency is the opportunity to look at your entire revenue cycle. So take that as an opportunity. Don't look at it as though it's something you have to do. Look at it as something that you want to do because you're putting something in place that your patients are going to see. And that really should be the most important thing. You want to make sure that patients are choosing to come to you because you know what you're doing and there's confidence. So, all right, next question. And boy, is this a a technical one. So, Lori Beaudry, this this is going to you so what are the new icd-10 guidelines regarding documentation for laterality so first can you help me understand what laterality actually means because i hear that all the time i don't have any idea and then help us understand the new guidelines
2: well laterality hasn't been new to coding if you've been coding cpt but it is it was new when icd-10 came into effect so laterality is if you have two of them on your body then you have a laterality, a right, a left. What's very interesting when it first came out and we were talking with coders, understanding that skin is not a laterality. So if you have a laceration to a right finger, you would think that that would be a laterality, but it's skin when you're talking about the CPT coding, In ICD-10, they're looking for the laterality of the right finger of the laceration. And the new guidelines that came out were to help the coders with the Finding the laterality in the documentation, you can use the radiology report. Other clinicians can also give you the laterality somewhere within the medical record. They do state that if there's a conflicting documentation in the record, that you should query the provider. Unspecified side should almost never be used. And if it is going to be used, you almost guaranteed a denial on it now that this is new from the providers, from the payers. They are not liking that we're putting unspecified laterality. If it was a hand fracture, we should know where the fracture was. Find the radiology report. Find the order for it. Review the physician's documentation, Review the nursing documentation. Review the medical assistant documentation, but be sure that you're coding for your laterality for the ICD-10.
0: Wow, great. No, thank you. But I'm glad you're on my team with this. This is good. All right, so next questions also submitted through the Missouri questions at com email keep those coming. This is on the No Surprises Act, and uh, the person that sent this, I'm going to say congratulations because this is a tough one that's out there, so I'm glad you're asking questions. So uh, before I get to the question first, Lori Daigle, can you just give me a high-level definition of the act, which is actually probably mislabeled because it's a law, right?
1: Well, yeah, it's the, lots of laws are called acts when they are created in Congress, but basically it is the law, And it's intended to protect patients from being billed for services that they did not know were out of network. They're going to an in-network provider, but sometimes individual providers within that facility might be out of network. So you're going to the hospital that you know is in your insurance network, but you don't know that the ED doctor is a contracted employee and not in your network or the radiologist reading your report is not in network, things like that. So it's intended to protect those patients from surprise billing, getting coinsurance deductibles, or maybe having to pay the bill in full because a, a provider is out of their network.
0: Okay. Nope, that that sounds great. All right, so let's get to this person's question. How should we train new hires in patient access to accommodate the No Surprises Act? So Laurie, what, what are your thoughts to that? It's a great question.
1: Well, New hires and existing patient access staff need to understand that in the past, we always strove to have or strive to have good registration and and checks and balances and checking eligibility. Now, it's the law. If you don't get the registration right, then you can't properly notify that patient that they may be out of network. And you're required now to notify a patient in advance if they're having an elective procedure or elective test or anything in advance, even an appointment in advance, that may involve an out-of-network provider. You can't do that if you don't know their proper insurance. So right now, it's really incumbent upon you to understand that it is they are required by law to get the insurance, right, to register the patients appropriately.
0: No. Terrific. So, as a quick follow-up, so what does back-end staff or outsourcing agencies need to know, you know, from a compliant billing, patient billing process because this this act is obviously very complex and there's a lot of stress that's put on the revenue cycle. So, what do you suggest from back-end staff and outsourcing agencies? What do they have to do?
1: Well, you know, you want to look at the EOB because the payers are required to pay these out-of-network benefits for instance if it it's an emergency, they can't assess that expanded coinsurance or deductible. If, for instance, you have an 80% coinsurance for in-network and a 60% coinsurance for out-of-network, they have to give you, if it's a true emergency, that 80% coinsurance. So making sure that they understand how to read the EOBs or the remittance advices and understand what's an emergency versus what might be an elective. I also have some checks and balances in place where, if it's an out of network payer, you probably want to drop it for review before you send a statement and make sure that you properly register that patient, you properly notify them that they were receiving an out of network service before you send that statement.
0: So, just for our listeners as well, so it, you know, until I sat down with Lori and kind of walked through the No Surprises Act, I, I really didn't. Uh, have an appreciation for how complex and how um, multidisciplinary it is throughout your entire organization. Uh, And I'm very pleased that we've gotten a lot of questions from the Missouri hospitals on this. So based on that, so I do just a little housekeeping thing. Again, just watch your email uh, in the next two weeks. You're going to get something from Tiffany's wonderful team for access to a webinar that is specifically on the No Surprises Act. Lori goes into depth on the act and really does help provide some some helpful strategies for successful implementation. So uh, watch out for that. Um, And if you're not getting those emails from uh, Tiffany and her team uh, and you want to be on that list, please uh, send Tiffany an email, get on the list. Let's make sure that you're getting all the resources that we're presenting. So, all right, let's find a question for Lori Beaudry. Oh, I like this one. All right. I am a coding manager, and my providers have a very difficult time appropriately documenting critical care and prolonged service. Can you give me any helpful hints or strategies to help them understand the codes better and document them correspondingly? It's a great question. Lori Baudry, your thoughts?
2: Well, it's interesting, John. I think to have them understand it better, physicians now correlate their codes with money. And critical care and prolonged services pay you additional money other than a straight E&M. However, there are components to it. They are time-based procedures. So the most important thing we can document there is how much time. For critical care, if you want to put the start and the stop time of the critical care, they do allow you to put the total minutes of critical care. They're not looking for you to round up. They're looking for exact minutes. I spent 75 minutes providing critical care for the patient. In addition to the time, you need to be sure that you've covered the medical necessity. Why did you have to perform critical care? What was the organ failure, the pending organ failure? What was the threat to life if you didn't provide critical care service to that patient at that time? That's what they're looking for. So it's not just time. It's also the medical necessity. And the same goes with the prolonged services. You're billing this with the highest level of service. So clearly the patient is very ill or the medical decision-making is complex, why was the medical decision making complex and what were you doing that made you extend in order to code for the prolonged services for those?
0: So just a quick follow up. Uh, you know, I know when we look at hospitals, we we often see high utilization of the critical care codes. And oftentimes those seem to be not based on documentation, but someone calling a code and all of a sudden everyone says we're going to build critical care now. So do you see that? as a reality that you know so you have to go back to people and have to change things because maybe it wasn't appropriate for critical care
2: well it's the in the facility setting critical care is a little bit different than the provider setting if a patient is in the er and you're using the ASEP to the asap guidelines which are nationally public guidelines if a patient had certain interventions if they were intubated if they had some sort of a central line a list of what they consider to be critical so they're looking for one of those interventions to be billed with a diagnosis that's appropriate and time that the patient was within the ER with critical care outside of the separately performed procedures. So, yes, they w- we would see it, and you would see it built separately. And I do agree that it should have come out when ASAP came out with that because the providers sometimes get scared of critical care, so the facility was losing money versus the provider. So there's two different situations, but they're both still time-based.
0: Nope, well, that's... Terrific. So, all right. So question for Lori Daigle. So we've been meeting with our department leaders, and we have questions concerning physical, occupational, and speech therapies, focused on estimates. So we register our PTOT and speech patients monthly and discharge them monthly as well. Is our estimate to be a monthly estimate or an each visit estimate? That's a good question.
1: So I'm assuming this is for No Surprises Act estimates. I I think so. This is a patient that requires um, that estimate for their care for no surprises. Uh, The HHS has discussed this, and they've said that they should have one estimate for the entire course of therapy. It should include the expected length of therapy, the expected number of visits, and the total number of service units. So PT and OT are billed usually in 15-minute increments, so the total number of service units. If the expected course of therapy changes after that estimate is completed, then a new estimate should be generated to provide the um, additional services that, or even less services that may be required. The exact law says you may create an estimate. When it uses the word may, it usually means you have a choice. But in the guidance from HHS, it appears to be the only estimate is how much time it covers. I guess to answer your question, the HHS hasn't really determined a specific pattern on this, but through other locations and other um, discussions I've had with hospitals, they're not even ready to create the physical therapy estimates. So some are giving estimates for the entire expected course, sometimes say two to three visits per week. They'll say, this is a therapy for six weeks, two to three visits per week, and they're estimating one hour each treatment. They're usually assigning for the initial eval, the middle eval, just to give you an estimate purposes. Again, the estimate is a good faith estimate. It has to be within $400 by law. So be careful about it. Get as close as you can. And the short answer to your question is it should be one per course of therapy.
0: Okay, great. All right, so our first wound care question so if a patient has multiple small wounds or are clustered together, can we just measure the entire area and document the percent debrided? So I think both of you have insights into wound care. Uh, Lori Giggle, why don't you go first?
1: Well, I'm going to jump into the coding side of it here now, because that's what's the most important thing. But I'll talk a little bit about some of the pitfalls that we see in that. The really, in the- Coding guidance, there's no such thing as a cluster wound. There's no definition of a cluster wound. The guidance basically says that for excisional and debridement procedure codes, each wound should be measured and the depth of each wound should be documented. If only a portion of the wound is debrided, report only the measurement of the area actually debrided. So the guidelines are very specific that you can't measure the entire distance between small wounds. You have to do each one individually. I've seen some examples where they say, they take the whole size of the cluster and they say 50% was debrided. Well, that isn't a measurement and we can't use percentages in those cases. You shouldn't be counting the space of viable tissue, you know, tissue that isn't included in the wound. Be careful around things like percentage of it is degraded. We really have to have the sizes.
0: That's true. So, Lori Bodry, you know, wound care has always been, you know, kind of a complicated service. Do you have any suggestions from a a pure coding standpoint on how to maybe improve it and uh, get better revenue cycle outcomes? It's a
2: very complicated area to code. It takes a coder with a lot of experience to code this. I think the number one thing, as simple as it's going to be, is that they put that it's. An excisional debridement. We know that that was a big area a few years ago. It continues to be an area. If they didn't say it was excisional, then it's not an excisional debridement. But we need the size of the debridement. If If the wound itself is very large and you didn't debride the entire area, we need the length of the debridement. Second important is the depth. How deep did they go? CPT codes are based on length, and they're based on the depth of the excisional debridement of each of the wounds. And as Laurie said, making sure that you're documenting each wound in each size so that the coder can then combine the codes
0: for the depth that is appropriate. Okay. Oh, that's, that sounds great. And I think one of the things that you're hearing guys is that coding some of the new acts, these things are hard. So coders have hard jobs. I mean, they're not just taking and just putting things on a bill. I mean, this is a very complicated specialty. Uh, It is a profession. Uh, It is the same thing from a business office standpoint. Just calling people billers and follow-ups probably doesn't do them justice because they have very, very difficult jobs. And just with the first couple of questions here, you can see that they are juggling a lot of different stuff. So these are great questions, everybody. I want to keep those things coming here. Uh, Next question for Lori Daigle. So uh, we register everyone that's involved in a motor vehicle accident as self-pay and the patient takes the billing to insurance. The patient usually has insurance, but we let them take the detail to the insurance company. Would we need to be doing estimates on those? Again, I think this seems to be a question in reference to the No Surprises Act. Uh, Lori, your thoughts?
1: Well, if you're registering as self-pay, then yes, you have to follow the No Surprises Act. No Surprises Act requires estimates for self-pay patients if it's an elective service, meaning a service that's being scheduled in advance. Now, if you go through the actual No Surprises Act, the law, the language, when it discusses things with respect to accidents, it only addresses them as the emergency portion of it, and that for the emergency, you can't require them to um, have a waiver in place, and you have to, if you're a third-party payer or a commercial insurance, you have to apply the coinsurance deductible, et cetera. That is for um, in-network services. However, it doesn't really talk about services after the emergent portion of an accident, like rehab services or surgeries to be scheduled, you know, in the future to repair, for instance, add pins, things like that. So there isn't any hard and fast guidance, except for if you're registering as a self-pay, And it's a service to be scheduled in the future. You do have to get that waiver and you have to give them an estimate.
0: Okay. no. So lots of complicated things with the No Surprises Act. So just a real quick question for my own edification. Um, Does the No Surprises Act apply to inpatient or swing bed services?
1: So it's a hospital-based service. If it's a scheduled service, it might fall into the No Surprises Act, but there's no specific guidance in there for what to do inpatient. There's also a little bit of gray area because we don't bill for critical access hospitals based on the DRG, so you might have some issues with inpatient services in a critical access hospital. There's no real hard and fast guidance around that.
0: So again, another Important piece for everyone to hear, just like pricing transparency, this applies to critical access. This is not something that because we're critical access, we can ignore it and it doesn't apply to us. It does. Uh, we've got to make sure that we've got the structure in place to be able to handle that. Well, thank you, Lori Daigle, for that. Okay. Technical coding question here. Lori Baudry, I am glad you're here to handle this one for sure. So the question is: I need help understanding the new ICD 10 guidelines regarding documentation other than the patient's provider. So, first help me. And all of the non-coders that are on this understand what this refers to, and then maybe help us understand what the new guidelines are.
2: From a coding perspective, the diagnosis has always come from the treating provider, the physician, the mid-level, the DO. That's where the diagnosis has come from in their assessment and plan, and that's what we've always used. But Coding Clinic, as it continuously updates, has now allowed us to pull certain diagnoses that have been documented by another clinician within the patient care. So they are referring to anybody that has regulatory accreditation requirements to document it in a patient's official medical record. So they actually gave us a list of what they were. The first one is the body mass index. So they can, a clinician can document that outside of the provider. Very interesting was the depth of the, Non-pressure chronic ulcers, that is always a constant battle trying to find out where the depth of the chronic ulcer was, the pressure ulcer stage, trying to find out what the stage of the pressure ulcer. So that was really nice. The coma scale, when a patient has had some kind of an injury and we're looking to code the coma scale, especially when you're coding on an inpatient record. The stroke scale, the NIHSS stroke scale, the social determinants, that's become a very big issue for a lot of facilities, wanting to capture all the social determinants of the health medical record. And here's laterality. Again, we spoke about laterality, letting another clinician be able to help us with that. And the blood alcohol level. I want to be very clear that you can get the blood alcohol level from somebody other than the physician. However, any of the associated Diagnoses that go with the information that we just provided have to come from the physician or the treating provider. It can't come from the other clinician. We can't find out that the patient was obese, that they had a, a pressure ulcer cannot be documented by the clinician, but we can use the stage of the pressure ulcer. And anything. That is classifiable in the F10 codes, which are all the alcohol related and all the drug related, has to be documented by the provider. We can't, a clinician is not able to diagnose the patient with some type of an alcohol um, issue, but we can take the blood alcohol level. So it was a big change for us, and I think it's been very nice that we are able to use the entire medical record because we could see it before that the nurse would stay with the stage, but the provider didn't, and we were sending back queries on it. So we were happy about that.
0: No, oh, that's that's great. And so for everybody who answers the Jeopardy question on laterality appropriately and well, we'll you know you know where you got that. And and on the uh, ask the expert thing, there's always good ulcer uh, talk, which I I like. So so thank you, Lori. That's um, so great questions, everybody. So some of these are. Absolutely very technical in nature. So remember, this is being recorded and it will be transcribed because sometimes you need to see this stuff. We're going to get these to every participant when they're complete. So make sure that Tiffany has your contact information. Again, be patient. It may take uh, a little bit to get it all done. But in the interim, if you need further clarification from our experts, please send the query to the Missouri Questions email and uh, we'll get back to you on that. So, all right, moving on. A question
3: in oh, the excellent. Q&A. So she's asking, we are having a lot of denials for IV hydration from insurance companies across the board. Healthy Blue, Blue Cross Blue Shield. What advice can you give us?
0: Lori Baudry, you want to take that?
2: Are they being denied for medical necessity or they being denied for documentation? Do we know?
0: Why don't we have Courtney type that in and then let's go to the next question and then we'll follow up because, uh, you know, I think answers to these are always based on the question that's asked in our understanding. So let's be, be specific, but great question. So let me just ask a quick vaccine question, which is the first one that came through. So Lori Daigle, questions for you. How should vaccine administration for children be reported? So why is this different from adults?
1: Well, for adult vaccines, you have one code for your initial administration and one code for each additional administration. For vaccines, there's usually, uh, for children rather, there's usually a counseling component. The doctor talks to or ideally should talk to the patients about each component within that vaccine and what kind of reaction they might look for in that child. So for children, you report the number of components. So for instance, for a Tdap, which is tetanus, diphtheria, pertussis, that's three components. If the components are actually the drugs that are combined within that vaccine, you need to MMR is measles, mumps, rubella. So you need to know what the vaccines stand for to figure out how many components are in the vaccine. And then you give one initial for that first one and each additional component you would report one unit of 90461. Measles, mumps, rubella is 90460 for the initial and then two units of 90461 for the additional components in the vaccine.
0: Okay. No, oh, that's terrific. Again, this kind of correlates with what uh, Lori Baudry Be- had mentioned before about the complication on documenting and billing for these, for these services. So, uh, all right, so we have 15... 15- minutes or so left here. So, do you, Tiffany, did you get any feedback from, uh, on the question? No,
3: I have not yet.
0: Okay. All right. So, uh, how about this? Just re-ask the question so everyone can hear and let's answer this in more in a general term. Why don't you re-ask that again, Tiffany?
3: Okay. We are having a lot of denials for IV hydration from insurance companies across the board, such as Healthy Blue, Blue Cross Blue Shield. What advice can you give us?
2: I'm going to assume that these are being denied due to medical necessity. A lot of times a bag is hung. I know that KVO and the TKO cannot be coded, but sometimes the providers order it and they want it to just drip in, in case they're going to give other drug administration through the same bag. But if the only reason they hung it was for... Another drug, then it's not billable. But if it was for hydration, they're going, to be for a doc- they're going to be looking for a diagnosis of dehydration, hypokalemia, hyperkalemia. They're going to be looking for some reason that you did a actual hydration, not just had a bag hanging with some fluid running. I'm going to assume that's what that what your um, question was. I hope that Courtney, answered it.
3: Courtney actually came back. She said they are not state. They are stating that it's not a billable service.
2: It is a billable service, and I would question if you're using the add-on code of the 96361 along with the Drug Administration. But the 96360 is definitely a billable service, so I would talk to your rep. I would talk to somebody about why they're denying that from a revenue cycle standpoint. But if the diagnosis was there to support it and the service was provided, then it is a billable service.
0: Yeah, so, so Tiffany, why don't you have Courtney email me directly? and then let us see if we can uh, help her specifically with that question and we'll look at that because there just seems to be a little bit of a disconnect and i know surprise surprise the payers like to play some games and try to deny things and you know that's our job is to fight all of those so so send that to us so that we can help her and respond directly so courtney great question great raising your hand there that's great yes
3: i have two more for you guys So the first one, have you experienced any issues with Medicaid authorizing and infusion medication, stating that auth is only good for the day the auth was performed? We have twice. Note these were both young patients with a chronic condition.
1: So the the authorization is only one day and then it expires? That's what it sounds like, yes.
3: That That is what they inferred, yes. Yep, yep.
1: I have not seen or heard of that you may have to be specific in in requesting the authorization and say that it's being scheduled for whatever. If they're only authorizing one day, you probably have to give them the day it's going to be scheduled for and try to authorize it for that.
0: But I, I would also, let's, let's, have that person contact us directly again. So let's let's maybe have a more in depth because I I don't want to give her a partial answer to that because I think there may be like an onion here. We just got to peel back a couple of levels to do that. Um, Tiffany, is said you had another one.
3: She came back though. One of the patients had been on it for three years prior. Just FYI. So the next Are you ready for the next question?
0: Absolutely.
3: What advice can you give on pass through billing for a critical access hospital? Do you see facilities doing this for all payers, just Medicare, Medicaid? If billing for Medicare, Medicaid, would you include the managed care plans for these? How would you recommend pricing these services?
0: Are you talking about pass through drugs? It seems like way, right? Labs. Labs. So. How are you defining a pass through lab? Is this a reference lab? So maybe, Tiffany, yes. if you can. yeah, yes. Okay, perfect.
1: Okay. Yep, there we go. So critical access hospitals, it's a challenge because you get paid on the cost-to-charge ratio, and you're charged usually a lot more by the reference lab than Medicare would pay on their fee schedule or Medicaid would pay on their fee schedule. So that's always been a challenge in a critical access hospital. For the commercials, you're going to bill a lot more than you're going to get paid, and and, and you're going to get paid a lot less then you usually paid to have the lab test done. Usually that's just you know a, a point of negotiation with the third-party payers. But I haven't honestly seen a lot of success with
0: that. So and let's just build off of that as well. So one of the, the weak areas in almost every hospital, regardless critical access or not is the designation in the charge master between in house and reference labs and making sure that reference labs are based on the cost of the service versus the in house labs, which are going to have fee schedule considerations taken in there. So we want to make sure that our charge masters have that designation. Because ultimately, just like Lori mentioned, I mean, this you, there's a huge difference in contractuals and all of that stuff that when it comes to some of these reference labs, and you need to manage that. We have lots of conversations with hospitals who are just losing their shirts on reference labs because they're doing rare genetic testing that they're sending. And the only lab in the world that does it is Mayo, and they charge it you know, appropriately. Yeah, we just need to have that identified so you can have real constant communication on that. So, Tiffany, do you have any more? I have a couple other ones to keep going through here.
3: That is all we have received so far.
0: All right. Well, you guys are rocking it. Keep asking the questions. I love it. Um, Here's a quick documentation question. So, Lori Baudry, I am a revenue cycle director, and I'm working with both my coders and providers. I need some clarification. When reviewing documentation, should the diagnosis always be listed on the assessment and plan, or will they allow it to be extracted from the note?
2: That's an interesting question, John, and a lot of this goes back to the HCC coding for those of you that aren't familiar with that. That's on the professional side, but CMS did come out and they did clarify saying that the purpose of clarity of the diagnosis should be listed in the assessment and plan, especially since the number and complexity of diagnoses will be factored into the level of complexity of the visit. So the new medical decision-making rules that they have, that's where that came into, and that's why they're looking for it in the assessment and plan. I will tell you from an education standpoint, you want to make sure that the HPI still lists all of the patient signs and symptoms to warrant the medical necessity of that. Even though those codes can't be used as your final diagnosis, they are important for the documentation standpoint.
0: Now that's that's terrific. So we are in our last 10 minutes here and I'm showing that we've had like 17 or 18 questions. You guys are rocking it. I love it. So Laurie Daigle, next question. It seems like this is another No Surprise Act question. So everyone, it's on everyone's mind. Does the No Surprises Act apply to rural health clinics?
1: No. That is one thing that they've made clear. The Rural Health Clinic is not a hospital outpatient department, even if you're provider-based. Because the type of bill for rural health is a, uh, the 7-1-X series, and it's not an outpatient hospital type of bill. Outpatient hospital type of bills will be the 1-3-X or the 1-4-X. Well,
0: oh, that's great. I, I would have thought they would have, so that's I'm learning. This is good. All right, Lori Beaudry, quick question. Can a nurse bill for impacted cerumen removal, or is it a physician-only charge?
2: The nurse can bill for it um, if it's performed under the Incident to rule in, in the office setting. But I think the more important piece of this question is it is for impacted cerumen. And it's interesting, a code brought to my attention several weeks ago that when you put cerumen in 3M, the code comes up as impacted. But the documentation by the person performing it or the qualified physician has to document that it was impacted. Otherwise, that particular CPT is not a billable service. So it's not just that you're adding the diagnosis. It's that the documentation was there to support the impacted serum and to be removed by either the nurse or the physician.
0: Oh. Great. good, Great answer. Um, all right. Getting into our last 10 minutes here, actually have a couple of RHC questions to follow up on the last one. Uh, Lori Daigle, this one's for you. We are supposed to be able to bill a mental health visit and a medical visit from our RHC, but we're only getting one AIR payment, all-inclusive rate payment, and the mental health visit is denying as a duplicate. Are we misrepresenting the guidelines? Are we, just, are we misunderstanding them? I'd
1: look at the revenue code that you assigned to your mental health visit. If you have 521 revenue code on both of them, then it is looking like a duplicate to the insurance company. Make sure that you're using the revenue code 900 on the mental health visit, so that they can distinguish between the two. It should be if you are billing appropriately on a you know a 521 for your medical visit and 900 for your mental health visit. That should process correctly. And you should get paid for both of them. You're correct that you should get paid for both
0: of them. Okay, great. Again, if you need other clarification on that, uh, email us. Happy to help with that. Um, Another quick one. Should we use modifier 25 to get separate Medicare reimbursement for an EKG performed in the RHC? Lori Daigle, your thoughts on that?
1: Well, there are two components to an EKG in an RHC setting if the doctor is both taking and reading it the taking of the EKG is considered a diagnostic service. So you wouldn't necessarily need a 25 modifier on that because you would bill it on a completely separate claim. Diagnostic services are not considered RHC services. The visit would be on your RHC claim and the diagnostic service, the taking of the EKG would be on a completely separate claim. If you're provider based, you would put that on a hospital type of Bill 131 claim, and it would be separate, it would be processed separately from the RHC service. If you're not provider based, you'd put it on a 1500. The reading, however, if the RHC doctor is doing the reading of the exam, that would be represented by a completely separate CPT. You have the taking 93005, the reading would be 93010, and the reading would be included in the RHC service because it's not a diagnostic service. So you wouldn't put a modifier on it and you wouldn't accept any additional all-inclusive rate payment.
0: Okay, so great answer. So Lori Baudry, modifier 25 just has always seemed to be an area of concern, whether it's RHC or not. Um, am I correct, you know, in that statement that it's just people seem to misunderstand it and maybe misapply it, But and, and if that's true, how can coding maybe help correct the application, you know, of the modifier?
2: I think, honestly, John, I could do a webinar on Modifier 25, and it could take a week to go through all of the guidelines on it. It's very important. When you add a Modifier 25 to anything, you are saying, please pay me this in addition to this. And so you need to make sure that you're following the separate identifiable guidelines. Why did you need to do both? Was it documented that you needed to do both? So it's really, really important that the documentation is there to support that. And the coders should have a lot of education on how to apply the Modified 25. Remember, from a facility standpoint, that Modified 25 is different than from a provider standpoint. We're looking for the T procedures on a technical bill, and you're looking for a separately identifiable e on the professional side. So a lot of coders don't do both technical and professional, so it is important that they're they're educated on the guidelines and how to use it in both
0: settings. Well, that's great. And I'm going to take you up and we'll do that six-hour <laughs> point Modifier 25 uh, webinar. Everyone on this would love to sit through that. So I think that's good. So we'll, we'll find a way to do that and make that digestible. But that's a great idea.
3: John, um, we had two okay. more come in.
0: All right, great. Go for it.
3: So we had a patient who was coming in for a drug for a while. Medicaid started denying for no PA. A nurse was told that it was a it was not needed. The pharmacy unit has since stated that this was on the non-preferred drug list and will need to be checked each time. Is there an argument for appeal on that?
1: Um, is there an argument? Yes. Will you win? That's hard to say. Medicaid and Medicare both uh, will allow drugs to be used for different reasons that aren't on their specific reason list. Lots of times you'll have a drug that is um, even FDA approved or common for one reason, but it's being used for a different reason. So you can always appeal it with that. Be really thorough in those appeals. I like to go out to PubMed, which is where all of the researchers publish. And I'll pull together a number of papers saying how effective it might be for that particular purpose if it's an off-label use is what we call it. And I submit my appeal with that documentation saying, yes, this may not be what you intend for the be the purpose, but here's all the documentation showing why it's effective. If you're going to appeal, say, for instance, an off-label use drug, make sure you give them as much information as possible to consider your argument. You know, That would be my best suggestion is do your research.
0: Great answer. So, we'll go over a little bit longer. Let's take that before we get to the end here. Tiffany, give us that that next question.
3: I may totally mess up some of these words, so sorry if I do, ladies. We need to provide a neck for the CPT code 81455, the targeted genomic sequence analysis panel, solid organ neoplasm, DNA analysis, 550 genes. The provider who did the biopsy did not place the order for this test the pathologist decided to order and perform tests due to in the biopsy. Who is required to provide the med neck or does it matter which provider does? I've never had this issue before in a biopsy from a brooch. I know this is lengthy. Feel free to email me since we're almost out of time.
1: Yeah. So that that is a really complicated one. The test probably reflexed and, the pathologist is allowed to do what they call reflex testing. And you can only get to the final diagnosis of the patient by ordering the cascading test. So test one says, do I have a problem? Test two says, what is the problem? If that's what happened, the doctor ordered one thing, identified a problem, and then the pathologist reflexed it into an additional test. Those can be appealed. So if we don't know for sure whether Medicare is the payer, Medicare has entire guidelines around reflex testing in the lab. And I would pull together that documentation. If you need it, you can email us. I can send it to you about why tests can and should be reflexed, meaning order that next level of testing to get the complete answer. I've used it successfully with commercial payers as well, but with Medicare, it works really well.
3: She said Blue Cross Blue Shield.
1: Um, you could, you, I would try... If it were a reflex test, meaning the the complete answer could only be um, determined by getting that next level of testing, I would still use the reflex guidelines and give again give that complete explanation. The pathologist could could help by saying why he needed that additional information.
0: And just tell her to feel free to reach out. We're happy to help craft a response. And and one thing I th- hope that everyone is is getting out of uh, both Lori's answers here. Everything that you get from anyone, you should try to get the resources and you should be able to see the links. So we always tell everyone, don't believe what we say, believe your lion eyes. So we want to send that to you and we want you to to read through things and really understand it, because that's really how you know the process gets better. So Tiffany, do you have any other outstanding questions? No, I do not. OK. All right. Well, um, I really want to thank everyone for their great questions today and for submitting them ahead of time. We got a lot of, I think, really great stuff in in a very short period of time. We will be scheduling another Ask the Expert session, uh, hopefully next month. Um, So please keep sending questions to that MissouriQuestions at uh, warbirdcp.com email. Please, again, also keep your eyes out for the next series of webinars coming from Tiffany and her wonderful team. The next presentation we're going to send to you will focus in on the no surprises act like I mentioned. Uh, Then that's going to be followed by a webinar on split and shared services. Actually, it's split or shared. I've been educated on that. Don't use the word and split or shared services. And then one that really gets into depth on the CMS part B final rule. So uh, please, everyone, uh, if you haven't had a chance to look at it, take a look at the webinar that was sent previously on uh, the CMS uh, final rule and pricing transparency updates. Lots of your questions came from that. That's been very helpful. My thanks to both Lori Baudry, and Lori Daigle for being with us today. Um, I know I learned a lot and I'm able to answer the laterality question on Jeopardy now, so I'm very good at that. And I know and hope that you guys uh, took a lot from this as well. Again, um, we do a lot of these things and you guys are rocking with asking the questions. So thanks for your participation and being involved today. So Tiffany, I'm going to turn this back over to you as our time is ending here. Again, our thanks to everybody that participated today and uh, our thanks to Tiffany, your team, for making this a reality. Tiffany, uh, do you have any uh, final closing words of wisdom?
3: Not any words of wisdom. You, You three did amazing. And thank you again for doing this for our critical access hospitals. I know it helps them a bunch. But I did put John's email in the chat if anybody would like to take that. It, and then i also it's j b e h n at warbirdcp.com if anybody needs to email him or email me i can forward it on to him he is here to help you guys we are off doing this for free for you guys having this for free so do not hesitate to reach contact him it is all for free and thank you again john and l- both the lorries for getting on and doing this for us today we really appreciate it
0: no our 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 pleasure and um and i think what you just said just deserves reiteration because i get a lot of this why you know? So how much does this cost to get the answer to this question? Because everyone uh, thinks that everything needs to come at a cost, and everyone just needs to understand. Tiffany, Barbara, and Misty, uh, they do yeoman's work to make sure that resources can come to you guys, and you get access to people uh, like Lori Daigle and Lori Bodry who can really help you understand and again make your life easier. This is what this is all about. So um, it's free. Tiffany's picking up the tab. So if there's questions on that, let her know. She'll do it, but, you know, email us, get in touch with us. We are here to help you guys. We want you guys to thrive. We're not interested in you guys just succeeding. We want you to thrive. So thanks, Tiffany. Really do appreciate you uh, helping make this a reality.
3: No problem. Thank you, everybody, for joining. I know it can be crazy hectic lately. So thank you for joining and listening to these wonderful people. Have a great day, everybody.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.